Part 1, Section 6 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremy Cat. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy, Section 6. Alone, with that black-shawled figure in the silent church, Anna did not pray. Resting there on her knees, she experienced only the sore sensation of revolt. Why had fate flung this feeling into her heart, lighted up her life suddenly, if God refused her its enjoyment? Some of the mountain pinks remained clinging to her belt, and the scent of them crushed against her, warred with the faint odor of age and incense. While they were there, with their enticement and their memories, prayer would never come. But did she want to pray? Did she desire the mood of that poor soul in her black shawl, who had not moved by one hair's breadth since she had been watching her, who seemed resting her humble self so utterly, letting life lift from her, feeling the relief of nothingness? Ah, yes. What would it be to have a life so toilsome, so little exciting from day to day and hour to hour, that just to kneel there in wistful stupor was the greatest pleasure one could know? It was beautiful to see her, but it was sad. And there came over Anna a longing to go up to her neighbor and say, Tell me your troubles. We are both women. She had lost a son, perhaps, some love, or perhaps not really love, only some illusion. Ah, love! Why should any spirit yearn? Why should any body, full of strength and joy, wither slowly away for want of love? Was there not enough in this great world for her, Anna, to have a little? She would not harm him, for she would know when he had had enough of her. She would surely have the pride and grace then to let him go, for of course he would get tired of her. At her age, she could never hope to hold a boy more than a few years, months perhaps. But would she ever hold him at all? Youth was so hard, it had no heart. And then the memory of his eyes came back, gazing up, troubled, almost wild, when she had dropped on him those flowers. That memory filled her with a sort of delirium. One look from her then, one touch, and he would have clasped her to him. She was sure of it, yet scarcely dared to believe what meant so much. And suddenly, the torment that she must go through, whatever happened, seemed to her too brutal and undeserved. She rose. Just one gleam of sunlight was still slanting through the doorway. It failed by a yard or so to reach the kneeling countrywoman, and Anna watched. Would it steal on and touch her, or would the sun pass down behind the mountains and it fade away? Unconscious of that issue, the black-shawled figure knelt, never moving, and the beam crept on. If it touches her, then he will love me, if only for an hour, if it fades out too soon. And the beam crept on. 
That shadowy path of light with its dancing dust motes, was it indeed charged with fate, indeed the augury of love or darkness? And slowly moving, it mounted, the sun sinking. It rose above that bent head, hovered in a golden mist, passed, and suddenly was gone. Unsteadily, seeing nothing plain, Anna walked out of the church. Why she passed her husband and the boy on the terrace without a look, she could not quite have said, perhaps because the torture does not salute her torturers. When she reached her room, she felt deadly tired, and lying down on her bed, almost at once fell asleep. She was wakened by a sound, and recognizing the delicate rat-tat of her husband's knock, did not answer, indifferent whether he came in or no. He entered noiselessly. If she did not let him know she was awake, he would not wake her. She lay still and watched him sit down astride of a chair, cross his arms on its back, rest his chin on them, and fix his eyes on her. Through her veil of eyelashes, she had unconsciously contrived that his face should be the one object plainly seen the more intensely visualized because of this queer isolation. She did not feel at all ashamed of this mutual fixed scrutiny in which she had such advantage. He had never shown her what was in him, never revealed what lay behind those bright satiric eyes. Now, perhaps, she would see. And she lay, regarding him with the intense, excited absorption with which one looks at a tiny wildflower through a magnifying lens and watches its insignificance expanded to the size and importance of a hothouse bloom. In her mind was this thought. He is looking at me with his real self, since he has no reason for armor against me now. At first, his eyes seem masked with their customary brightness, his whole face, with its usual decorous formality. Then, gradually, he became so changed that she hardly knew him. That decorousness, that brightness, melted off what lay behind, as frosty dew melts off grass. And her very soul contracted within her, as if she had become identified with what he was seeing, a something to be passed over, a very nothing. Yes, his was the face of one looking at what was unintelligible and therefore negligible, at that which had no soul, at something of a different and inferior species and of no great interest to a man. His face was like a soundless avowal of some conclusion, so fixed and intimate that it must surely emanate from the very core of him, be instinctive, unchangeable. This was the real he, a man despising women. Her first thought was, and he's married, what a fate. Her second, if he feels that, perhaps thousands of men do. Am I and all women really what they think us? The conviction in his stare, it's through and through conviction, had infected her, and she gave into it for the moment, crushed. 
Then her spirit revolted with such turbulence, and the blood so throbbed in her that she could hardly lie still. How dare he think her like that, a nothing, a bundle of soulless, inexplicable whims and moods and sensuality. A thousand times no. It was he who was the soulless one, the dry, the godless one, who in his sickening superiority could thus deny her, and with her all women. That stare was as if he saw her a doll, tricked out in garments labeled soul, spirit, rights, responsibilities, dignity, freedom, all so many words. It was vile. It was horrible that he should see her thus. And a really terrific struggle began in her between the desire to get up and cry this out and the knowledge that it would be stupid, undignified, even mad to show her comprehension of what he would never admit or even understand that he had revealed to her. And then a sort of cynicism came to her rescue. What a funny thing was married life, to have lived all these years with him and never known what was at the bottom of his heart. She had the feeling now that if she went up to him and said, I'm in love with that boy, it would only make him droop the corners of his mouth and say in his most satiric voice, Really? That is very interesting. Would not change in one iota his real thoughts of her, only confirm him in the conviction that she was negligible, inexplicable, an inferior, strange form of animal, and of no real interest to him. And then, just when she felt that she could not hold herself in any longer, he got up, passed on tiptoe to the door, opened it noiselessly, and went out. The moment he had gone, she jumped up. So then, she was linked to one for whom she, for whom women, did not, as it were, exist. It seemed to her that she had stumbled on knowledge of almost sacred importance, on the key of everything that had been puzzling and hopeless in their married life. If he really, secretly, wholeheartedly despised her, the only feeling she need have for one so dry, so narrow, so basically stupid, was just contempt. But she knew well enough that contempt would not shake what she had seen in his face. He was impregnably walled within his clever, dull conviction of superiority. He was forever entrenched, and she would always be only the assailant. Though, what did it matter now? Usually swift and almost careless, she was a long time that evening over her toilet. Her neck was very sunburnt, and she lingered, doubtful whether to hide it with powder or to accept her gypsy coloring. She did accept it, for she saw that it gave her eyes so like glacier ice under their black lashes, and her hair, with its surprising glints of flame color, a peculiar value. When the dinner bell rang, she passed her husband's door without, as usual, knocking, and went down alone. In the hall, she noticed some of the English party of the mountain hut. They did not greet her, conceiving an immediate interest in the barometer. But she could feel them staring at her very hard. 
she sat down to wait and at once became conscious of the boy coming over from the other side of the room, rather like a person walking in his sleep. He said not a word, but how he looked, and her heart began to beat. Was this the moment she had longed for? If it indeed had come, dared she take it? Then she saw her husband descending the stairs, saw him greet the English party, heard the intoning of their drawl. She looked up at the boy and said quickly, Was it a happy day? It gave her such delight to keep that look on his face, that look as if he had forgotten everything except just the sight of her. His eyes seemed to have in them something holy at that moment, something of the wonder-yearning of nature and innocence. It was dreadful to know that in a moment that look must be gone, perhaps never to come back on his face, that look so precious. Her husband was approaching now. Let him see if he would. Let him see that someone could adore, that she was not to everyone a kind of lower animal. Yes, he must have seen the boy's face, and yet his expression never changed. He noticed nothing. Or was it that he disdained to notice? End of section six from The Dark Flower. Recording by Jeremy Cat.